Welcome to BSD Talk, number 86. It's Wednesday, December 6, 2006. In the news, well, not BSD-related, but somebody sideswiped my car on the way to teaching at the university tonight, so that thing got towed away on a flatbed. Unfortunately, some people heading in the other direction got into an accident as I was passing them in the other direction, and one of the cars ended up getting pushed out into my lane, and smashing against the side of my car, but nobody was hurt. Those things happen, but uh, a three-month-old car is now going to need a lot of repair. Anyway, I was able to come home and at least edit this interview, and here it is. Today on BSD Talk, we're speaking with Kip Macy. Welcome to the show. Hello. Could you start by telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do? I work for a small startup in Marin County in California right now. It's uh, sort of trying to provide desktop users with means of uh, recovering from fiber and viruses that doesn't require detection. And on the side, I recently did a port to the UltraSpark T1. And uh, for better or worse, it was much more work than I thought it would be, but it's a lot less, it was you know, less work than a true port from scratch. The Spark 64 port provided all the user land bits and much of the kernel bits. However, due to the uh, nature of way trap handling is slightly different on Sun 4V from Sun 4U, I ended up uh, rewriting the trap handling and um, largely as a result of my analysis, or I don't know whole analysis, but I wasn't partial to the way that the virtual memory interface, the machine-dependent virtual memory interface had been implemented. I actually rewrote that as well. Uh, it needed to be partially rewritten anyway because you don't have direct access to the TLB on Sun4V. It's all mediated by the hypervisor. But just looking at the design, it did not seem like it was sort of had any awareness of a caching and whatnot and in terms of how data structures were laid out and uh, didn't seem very scalable. So they took the Spark 64 port as it was and sort of rewrote the initial bootstrap portion, trap handling, and the memory management. And, you know, the T1 is, you know, fairly stable now. There's some issues we're seeing on the T1000s that we have in the cluster. I'm not actually seeing any issues on, on my T2000. And then the, my biggest concern right now is the uh, performance gap between the T1 and the quad opteron. In principle, the T1 should be able to uh, outperform the quad opteron on, on workloads that have a lot of parallelism. But as a consequence of a number of issues, I mean, FreeBSD currently doesn't really scale that well past four CPUs right now, and a number of other you know, issues that need to be dealt with in terms of, you know, making it really perform well. So, I mean, I'd, I'd like to see it be more than just a hobbyist port, like the Spark 64 port, but uh, maybe for the time being, in, until the performance is sort of competitive with the Opteron, it will just be a hobbyist port. 
Yeah, the the T1 port was the main reason for my call today. Uh And maybe we should back up a little bit and just describe what that architecture is and who supplies it. Okay. The T1 is actually indirect as a result of a spin-out of a project in Sun Labs to a company named Afara, which was later acquired by Sun. And it simplifies the design of the pipeline on the processor. So it, it, rather than emphasize single-threaded throughput by doing fancy branch prediction out-of-order logic, you know, it has a very simple pipeline. And what it does is it on the on ship it has eight cores, and each t- core has four threads. And when a thread for some reason can't continue, it has a pipeline flush. It misses in the ca- L1 cache has to go to the L2 cache. Misses in the L2 cache has to go out to memory. That thread simply stops being scheduled. So if all threads are um, schedulable, the, the processor goes through them round robin. So it's really designed to handle workloads that don't have a nice small working set and that all fit in cache. If you if everything fits in cache, it's actually a very poor platform because you basically have 32 250 megahertz processors with you know corresponding levels of contention and whatnot. But it, if it's a more typical database workload, there's very little cache locality, and you're constantly any at any given time one thread is waiting on memory. And rather than than having the chip running hot, doing a lot of out of order branch prediction, that's not out of order logic it's not really helping, it just simply stops scheduling that thread. So as a result of eight cores, four threads per core, you have 32 logical CPUs on the chip. But anyway, this came out last year and is supported by Solaris 10, uh, recent versions of Linux, and uh, now FreeBSD. And sometimes... Q3, of, I believe, of next year, they'll be coming out with the next generation of the Sun 4V, which will be the, uh, the T2. And if one can actually go and look online, there's a Hot Chips presentation from August where they describe the key characteristics there. And I guess the final production details aren't known, so they don't know how much the clock speed will go up, but I guess the current guess is 1.4. It'll be 1.4, 1.5 gigahertz as opposed to the current 1 gigahertz and 1.2 gigahertz. And instead of four threads per core, you'll have eight threads per core. And it'll have two on-chip 10, gigi, 10 gigabit Ethernet max, along with um, some hardware support for and a crypto offload and whatnot. So it's kind of it's kind of an interesting architecture in terms of where it's it's very heavily focused on sort of the server space. I mean, I can't see uh, Quake doing a particularly good job of uh, running with 64 threads anytime soon. And when you were working on this port, were you reverse engineering a lot of stuff? Or Actually, Sun's been very good about providing. I mean, all the. Um, you now I did have access to some unpublished documents, but you know, basically everything. That we needed to do the port was completely documented and available on OpenSpark.net, so I didn't actually have to do anything. I mean, there were some aspects of the IOMMU in terms of the hypervisor interface that um, the documentation there isn't as good as it is for other areas of the hypervisor. For the PCI, when we when uh, 
John Michael Gurney was adding PCI support, but was reworking the PCI support. But uh, overall, I mean, the documentation covers everything that uh, we need to know. The one thing that I don't have uh, documentation for, and which I may not actually be able to get documentation for because of export restrictions, is the uh, crypto offload. There's a on-ship, some sort of SSL or crypto acceleration on the T1 as well, and I don't have any documentation about that, so unfortunately. So when you but, said you had access to unpublished documentation, does uh, that require... Yeah, they have... Um, their internal documentation that, that people used, and it's I mean largely the same documentation as you see on the web. It's just that it's just uh, more poorly formatted. <laughs> so there's some bits that it covered in a little bit more more depth, but the, I didn't actually end up needing any of that for for purposes of the port. I mean, basically everything that one needs to know is publicly available. So they've been much more forthcoming about the T1 interfaces than they been with the UltraSparks in the past. So no NDAs? Uh, I actually have a CDA for information so that they did have the luxury of providing me with some of the um, you know, open firmware bindings and whatnot that weren't publicly documented. But I mean, but what it largely is, is is that a lot of the documentation isn't really fit for public consumption. So it's more a matter of um, they don't want you know documentation that isn't hasn't been vetted and, and isn't well organized going up on the website as it doesn't look good. I mean, even the documentation that is online has some, you know, structural errors and whatnot. So we think it's more a matter of a PR than anything else in terms of what they do and don't make public. But I did actually sign a CDA, and that was actually part of uh, just getting the uh, access to the hardware. Um, they lent me a T2000. And so that's, I, mean, I would not have been able to uh, do the port without the hardware. Was all the code necessary for this port code that is released under the BSD license, or did you also incorporate anything from Open Solaris? The only bit that I incorporated, from, I mean, I'm gradually taking out stuff that I, I incorporated from Open Solaris because the licensing issues, but uh, the hypervisor interfaces that you, sort of the hypervisor equivalent of system call interfaces, were all with that file called hcall.s, and the headers corresponding to that were taken directly from OpenSolaris initially. I've since gone and rewritten those from scratch so that they can be BSD licensed and the baseline kernel doesn't need that. They also have various optimized bcopy and b0 routines uh, that they use in the kernel, which I've gone and reworked in order to be able to compile in, BSD, in FreeBSD. And uh, that's in a separate CDDL directory, and uh, eventually, you know, that'll get rewritten with a BSD licensed version, so we won't need to include the CDDL version of that. Another thing that the set of files that's in CDDL that we're currently using that's from OpenSolaris is what's called a machine description. So the hypervisor. Uh, has a way of describing the, the topology of the system called you know machine description and it's and then it's actually documented in the hypervisor API docs and it is what's used for describing the layout of logical domains so the machine description stuff really isn't needed for the running the initial what in sand would be called domain zero but you need it 
different information about virtual networking and virtual disk devices that you have in a logical domain running as a guest. And uh, so I've been working on, you know, recently did some work on starting to add uh, a virtual networking driver for um, FreeBSD so it can run as a guest. So Solaris can be the, the boot OS, and then FreeBSD can run as a guest on the T1. Could you talk a little bit more about that hypervisor and whether you considered it a benefit to the port, or was it a hurdle that you had to get past? Oh, I think it's definitely a benefit because, at least in principle, it allow it'll make it easier to move between different UltraSpark versions that have the hypervisor because they have a versioned API, uh, the versioned interfaces. Also, it uh, I mean the ability to. Um, Partition the threads up into logical domains. I think I see is is being benefit potentially beneficial for many users. So you can have multiple instances, of, particularly for until FreeBSD can sort of scale up to 32 threads. You know, it may make more sense to have four instances of FreeBSD with eight threads apiece or something. So I mean, I actually see the hypervisors being quite useful as it uh, it allows them some more more flexibility between processors in terms of changing the on-chip interfaces without forcing the developer to rewrite large chunks of his OS, well, not large chunks, but rewrite the interfaces in the OS to handle you know, the MMU and various issues being changed between chip versions. So um, I actually don't see it as being an issue. And it's actually fairly well documented. So it, it would be problematic if it weren't... Um, very well documented, but, but just like this hardware, I mean, just trying to guess what things are supposed to do, but it's, it's actually the documentation is better than what one normally gets for these sorts of things. And what are you able to do with the T1 port at this point? Basically, it does what one expects of a normal previous D port. One has full use of all the devices, and uh, for the most part, it's fairly stable. So, Does it have a frame buffer? Uh, no, it's a, it's purely a server. I mean, it's if you ever hear it, you'll understand why. They, they, they didn't intend it to be used as a, a desktop machine. I mean, I mean, you could use it, have thin clients hooked up to it, but it's not, it's not a desktop machine. There's no, there's no graphics card. I mean, there isn't any, even a keyboard. It's, uh, you can access it through a management port, and uh, all work has been, you have an SC where you can power on and power off and upgrade the firmware revs, but uh, <laughs> if you hear the fans on it, you would understand that you don't want to use it for your desktop. <laughs> so. And you mentioned that it is designed to work well with certain workloads. Do you have any applications in mind that inspired you to start porting FreeBSD to this architecture? No, not particularly. I mean, I initially thought that, I thought, A, there would be less work involved because I thought the uh, Spark 64 port being supposedly being tier one was a little bit more mature. And two, I thought that there were more people who were actively involved with it. But um, no, I mean, I initially, I just happened to know the person who was the, the architect for the hypervisor and was just sort of trying to uh, get the resources together for people in the FreeBSD community to port to it. I didn't. I actually anticipate doing the majority of the port as it was. 
But no, I'm, I'm generally interested in virtualization and general system scalability issues that come up in FreeBSD. So I'd just like to see those be addressed more in the future. And I thought it was exciting having a platform that has 32 logical CPUs because it does give FreeBSD developers something to shoot for. Because you know, prior to this, FreeBSD hasn't really been run seriously on any machines with more than 12 CPUs. So are you working with any other projects with FreeBSD? No, I haven't really had time. I mean, I did FreeBSD port to Zen, and that's kind of, unfortunately, I've kind of let that stagnate. You know, maybe bring that back up to date at some point. But uh, no, this, uh, this is really the only, only uh, FreeBSD project that I have time for. One question I always have in my mind when I'm talking to people that port an operating system is, how did you even start to get involved in something like this? It really seems like a, a complicated project, and where would you develop the skills to even think about taking a task like that on? It's just piecemeal. You just gotta. It's just the first step. Just gotta take the first step and keep going. I mean, initially, I learned a bit about the internals of FreeBSD from doing the Zen port and you know various pieces there, and just getting things to work debugging problems there. And then with the Spark port, I'd never worked on Spark before, but um, they do have a nice a nice simulator for the T1 called the Legion. And initially, you know, you just basically go and start from the beginning and figure out what needs to change. And, and, when, and the nice thing about uh, the simulator is that if the CPU goes off into the weeds, you can be tracing the instruction stream. So you can go through the instruction stream and see where things went wrong. It's not really fast enough to help, you know, once you get much past single user, but uh, it was very, it was very, very valuable uh, in terms of porting to the T1, particularly for me without any sort of previous Spark experience. Another issue is that the T1, the boot times, I had some issues with my switch. I mean, the boot times when netbooting, it can be like, you know, I would have netboot fail, you know, two or three times in a row. And so, you know, it had time between iterations was half an hour. So, you know, with the simulator, it actually made it possible. I mean, just trying to do the tests on raw hardware was simply too uh, too frustrating. Well, that was actually, I think, what the CDA was for now that I think the, the simulator hadn't been released yet as of that point. And uh, so it made it possible for them to provide the me with the simulator, which I used for doing the initial development. So how did you first get involved in working with FreeBSD? Well, my first experience with FreeBSD was at um, the semester that I took the operating systems class at Berkeley. Uh, we actually used FreeBSD, and we changed various bits of functionality in the FreeBSD kernel. That was back in 2.0. 2.16 or so, if I recall correctly, thereabouts. Then after that, I mean, I didn't really do that much. I mean, sort of off and on used it uh, as a desktop platform. But in terms of actually working on FreeBSD, the first time, well, let's see, first first little bit is I did process checkpointing, which I ended up uh, actually putting, into, putting back into Dragonfly because uh, Matt was actually very supportive and helpful in terms of getting that to work. Then after that, the next thing I did was the uh, Zen port, which 
has lots of little beats and pieces. And the challenge with the Zen port is, is they're changing the interfaces on a monthly basis. You know, every every few months they're changing the interfaces. So even if I were to get it to the point where it's stable and full featured and solid, you know, in three months, it wouldn't, you know, it would no longer, you know, probably no longer even be usable if I hadn't been um, keeping the bits up to date. Uh, whereas with Sun, they actually do they do have the interface is still a hypervisor, but they version the interfaces, so the, the old interfaces are still there. And so, if, you know, when I do decide that the, you know the Sun 4V port is stable and mature, I can happily leave it. And you know, apart from the changes in FreeBSD, you know, I don't have to worry about it not working six months from now. So that's sort of a, a little bit more motivating for me as the main developer on that. That's kind of one of the reasons I haven't really been working on Zen is there's just no no conception about interface versioning. So those are the main projects. So the real, the place where I really got engaged into the internals of, of, of FreeBSD was was doing the Zen port when I was working at Net NetApp. And are you using FreeBSD on your home desktops? Yeah, right now I have a. Previous D desktop right now running a three-month-old version of Current, and at work I'll potentially be using a uh, Xilinx part, which has a uh, PowerPC 405 core. And for the time being, we'll probably use MonoVista Linux, but longer term, hoping to uh, use FreeBSD on the PowerPC core as well. All right. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me today. Okay. Great. Have a good day. Uh, thank Take you. Care. If you'd like to leave comments on the website or reach the show archives, you can find it at bsdtalk.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to send me an email, you can reach me at bitgeist at yahoo.com. That's B-I-T-G-E-I-S-T at yahoo.com. I'd also once again like to thank the OpenBSD developers for the use of the opening music. Thank you for listening. This has been BSD Talk number 86.